Uh, it's a privilege to be in front of you this morning, be able to share. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to have an interactive time. I'm not going to get up here and lecture. I'm a tax lawyer. That would put you to sleep very quickly. So we're going to interact around our tables. Uh, if you happen to be sitting at your table with your spouse but not sitting next to your spouse, you should switch right now because we're going we're gonna to have some time where we talk as couples as well for those of you that are with your spouses. I do want to make sure uh, and uh, introduce my sister, Kathy, and her husband, Don. Good to have family in the room because we're going to do an evaluation afterwards. So I'm going to get at least two good scores. Uh, so I'm feeling good about that. Kathy and I are both privileged to have a father who is a great public speaker. And he once told me that public speaking is kind of like drilling for oil. If you don't hit something interesting pretty quick, you need to stop boring. Okay? <laughs> okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about planning. We're going to talk about wealth. We're going to talk about family, about kids and all those things. Um, but to start us off, I want to tell you a story. Just, um, gosh, uh, maybe four weeks ago, I was with a family. Um, the matriarch and the patriarch, um, they have three kids. There are three in-laws. And um, I love this family. They're a very generous family. And um, I actually had uh, a meeting with them 10 years ago. I've had other meetings since then. But uh, we met 10 years ago because they were going to sell a significant portion of their business and give it away. And the, the mom and dad were very excited about this. We did a lot of planning for them. And um, I would say that they were probably selling, I'm guessing, about 80% of their business, if I remember correctly. It was a long time ago. And so we got everything arranged, and then we were going to have the first ever family meeting with their kids. There were no in-laws in that meeting. They, one, I think one of them was married, but uh, the in-laws were not there, so it was just mom, dad, and three kids. And mom and dad were excited. They were going to tell the kids that they were selling a significant portion of the family business, and they were giving almost all of it away. A little nervous laughter. <clears throat> now, this is a Christian family. I knew the kids. I'd been around the kids. Great kids, all believers. Mom and dad get up there. They, they go through the whole thing that we've worked through, and there is silence after they finish talking. And their kids are giving them a blank stare. Their expectation is joy. They think that their kids are going to go, this is fantastic. Can we help give away the money? Can we be a part of this? Nothing. Silence. Uh, the oldest child was a son, and he kind of felt the nervousness, um, and he was kind of like Peter. He was a go-getter, and he said several things that meeting that he probably regrets to this day. Um, but he basically said to his dad, you're stealing from us. Because you see, the company was their fourth child. Dad probably spent more time with his company than he did any of his kids. And his kids felt they were getting ripped off. Because this wasn't something that mom and dad got to deal with. This is our deal. You understand what I'm talking about? And it was devastating. Devastating to them. But thankfully, they had time to fix it. Um, so I'm going to give you a few things that, uh, that they've done. Um, and at the end of the talk, I'm going to share with you what the key was for them coming back together as a family. And we had a great time. You, if, if you would have been with me, I guess maybe four weeks ago with them, it was unrecognizable from 10 years ago. Completely unrecognizable. Now all of the kids are generous givers themselves. And they're all giving it all away. But it was very different then. 
So I'm going to take you through a journey, and we're going to process through this together. We're going to talk about planning and all this fun stuff. Y'all ready? Okay. See if I can make this work. Okay, the first thing we need to understand, and we've heard several of the speakers say this, is that we aren't owners of the stuff that we have. Has anybody ever served as a trustee of a trust before? Anybody done that? Anybody ever served as a trustee of a trust where you weren't the beneficiary and you weren't the trustor, the person that funded the trust? Okay, that's the position that we really live in with regards to the, the wealth that we have. Um, it, it's not ours, and it ultimately isn't for our benefit. We play this role of a trustee, and I love April used this word in, the, um, in your uh, testimony, that trust is at the very core of what we are as stewards, and being faithful is really our ultimate desired output of this whole process of life. So let's... Uh, Let's talk about this for a minute. Okay, who knows what that's a symbol of? Say it loud. Radiation. Radiation. You know, there's smart people in this audience. I asked four people yesterday if they knew what this symbol was, and I went over four. And so I'm glad that there were some people that actually knew what this was. Radiation is a powerful thing. It can do remarkable things if it's harnessed correctly. But you get it outside of the way it should be harnessed, and it is extremely lethal. In actually, small doses, extremely lethal. And the scriptures basically say wealth is just like that. It's just like that. Here are the three things that we really do with regards to wealth. We create wealth, we consume wealth, and then we contribute wealth. And we're gonna spend the, most of our time this morning talking about the, some of the consuming a little bit. We're gonna talk a lot about the contributing of wealth, both to kids and even uh, giving. So with regards to planning, there's three keys to planning. Number one, it's not about money. It feels like it's about money, but it really isn't. It's about your heart. I'll assure you that all the planning that that family did that I talked to you about that I was with 10 years ago, they did a lot of planning, but the heart aspect was lost on them. They just missed that whole piece. Second of all, people who are well-planned give more wisely. And they actually give more as well as give more wisely. And also, we're going to talk a little bit about finish lines, because if you don't set finish lines, as Steve and April were talking about, you will never be as generous as you could be otherwise. And setting finish lines is a tricky thing. So we're going to talk about that for a little bit. Here's one of the things that this family did. This, this mom and dad decided that their family basically had no mission. They had no unity in how they were working and living together. They basically were four different units. Um, mom and dad were a unit, and then each child totally separate, no, no unifying goal, no unifying mission. And so one of the things they did is they set out to create a family mission statement. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but um, there aren't a lot of families that have taken the time to create a family mission statement. It's fairly rare. Um, and I'll just throw this up there just to actually have you write down on a piece of paper a family mission statement. And this is just a placeholder. This is just, there's lots of different ways you can do this. Be very creative, but I really encourage you, if you don't have a family mission statement, it's a great way to bring unity to your family. And I'm just, that's just an example of, uh, I, have, I have a template if, if you want to see me afterwards that, of a whole, whole, whole set of resources to help create a family mission statement. But it was a really, really important part of what this family did. Gives them guardrails, helps them keep focus with what's going on, and it also helps to celebrate things as they are accomplishing that mission. This is what estate planning feels like to most of us, though, isn't it? 
Okay, we don't like estate planning. I mean, come on, we just applauded the fact that there weren't lawyers in the room. A little humiliating. We, we don't like estate planning, and that, that's what it feels like, that we're just basically distributing our fees to different advisors. Um, but that's, that's, uh, that's kind of how it works. So let's talk a little bit about um, a, pers- a perspective on planning. Uh, you know, we just had tax day. I was just curious, do we have many Warren Buffetts in the room? Did anybody pay their taxes and feel like, you know what, I really should be paying more taxes? Um, can, we, can we crank this thing up? Let's go to 30, 40, 50%. Any, anybody think we should be paying a whole lot more in taxes? Um, you know, Will Rogers, the shrine, did anybody go up to the shrine? Do you see the shrine up on the mountain? I'm a big fan of Will Rogers. One of the things that Will Rogers said, he had a lot of great jokes about taxes and government. One of the things he said was, is that we should all be very thankful that at least our government isn't spending all the money that we're giving in a way that could be helpful. He just did. I mean, if, if they were actually using it, no telling what would be going on. We should even be thankful. Um, we haven't heard um, Pete and Deb, I don't know if the Oaks are still here, but one of the things that they said that's really key, and this is the first kind of uh, thing we're gonna do at our table, is that uh, when they talked about um, when they went through planning and selling their company, did you remember what they said about their advisor? Their advisor told them, don't do it. Didn't make any sense. You know, why would you take something that's producing all this cash and why would you give it away? That makes no sense. And so here's the first exercise that I want you to go through. Because one of the things that's critical to good planning is having a like-minded advisor, a common worldview advisor. So I want you to take a piece of paper and just jot the first names of your advisors down. Just the first names. Every advisor that you have, it's a lawyer, it's an accountant, it's a financial planner, it's an investment person. Anybody that's influencing you with regards to how you're managing wealth in your life. Just jot those names down on a piece of paper. Okay. Now some people wrote two or three, some people wrote seven or eight possibly, because some people have lots of advisors. Now I want you to circle the ones that you know for sure have a common worldview, that they see things with your worldview. Now this is a tough deal to do. Um, If you uh, had a child that was in a marriage and was having difficulties and they needed to get some marriage counseling, one of the things that you would make sure they did if they came to you for help was to make sure that they got a like-minded marriage counselor, right? You, you wouldn't just send them to some secular person. But when it comes to managing our wealth, it's irrelevant. We rarely care about the, the worldview of our uh, counselors with regards to our wealth. I'm here to tell you that as stewards of the wealth that we have, uh, it's worship. What we do with our wealth is worship. So I challenge you to, to look at that list and really give it serious thought as to whether or not you should Try to surround yourself with, uh, with like-minded um, managers and advisors. With regards to planning itself, here's just a couple of thoughts. You gotta be careful. So often the tax tail will wag the dog. The taxes are a minor issue in the scheme of things. The heart is much more important. And wealth transfer planning is a process. It's not just a point in time. So it's something that goes on and on and on. And that's one of the reasons why it's great to have really good advisors that have a common worldview. Okay. As we go through this process, though, the first thing we're going to talk about is on the consumption side, because we do have to consume. As a trustee, 
we do need to be meeting our needs. But there are differences between needs and wants, right? Everybody has different needs and wants. One of the things that I love about the Broadmoor, and really a lot of these hotels that I go to, is they are generous. These hotels are so generous. I mean, I don't know about your room, but these are the gifts that I had in my room, okay? <laughs> now, now, if you don't need these things, you can give them to other people. This makes a great college student gift, okay? <clears throat> All right? How many of you had these? Lord knows I don't need one of these. This is great too. Bob, could you come up? Um, first, Bob, you need this for your eyebrows, so I'll give you this. And as a thank you gift, uh, they have Tal's monogram for Bob. There's a B on there. Yeah. So that's a gift, I'm just being generous. Of course, there are some things that uh, we need but we don't want. Okay. And who, put, who, who did this branding? Thinner? Yeah, that helps. We all have different needs and wants. It's different for everybody. You know, also there's differences between men and women, how we process this. This was a big issue with that family. There was, they didn't, the, 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 they didn't both work together. And men or women are very, very different. Uh, and any advisor in here that will tell you that, you know, women, the, the average uh, number of words that a man uses every day is about 25,000. The average number of words that a woman uses 50,000 per day with gusts up to 120. Okay. Okay. Right, Uncle Don? Absolutely. Another thing is that uh, when it comes to stuff, we think very differently as men and women, right? Okay. If a woman needs four things, okay, first of all, she doesn't go one place. She goes multiple places to get the four things. She will buy six, return two, and exchange one. And how many does she have at the end? Can you do that math? Okay, she needs four. She buys six, returns two, and exchanges one. She ends up with four, okay? Send your husband to Home Depot to get three things. How many does he come back with? He doesn't come back with three things. 30 things. And he only uses three of them and he keeps them all, doesn't he? Okay. When, she, when the lady goes out and buys those four outfits, what else does she have to have now that she's got the four outfits? Got to have shoes. This is one of the biggest mysteries to men in the world because you don't get one pair of shoes for each outfit. These things multiply like rabbits and those of us that are unwise will actually talk to our wives about this issue, which we do not understand at all. Okay. But a man will go out, he'll buy a boat, and he'll call it an investment for the family. Okay. Okay. So we think of these things very differently. Turn your chairs around to your table. Understanding the difference between needs and wants, really important. So we're going to answer a quick question, very quick question here. And actually, we heard the answer to this question in April and Steve's testimony. Here's the, here's the question. Why do we have more than we need? All of us would agree we have more than we need. Why do we have more than we need? Answer that question. Can anybody think they got the answer? Anybody got the answer? I do have to tell you something. Okay, everybody, here we go. If you can hear me, raise your hand. If you can, thank you very much. Very good. 
Okay, I, I got his, this is a little parenthetical that just hit me. I don't know how many of you do this. I, when I stay at a hotel, I tip the maid, okay? And I've checked out of my room, all my stuff is out. And I, gave, I left all the cash that I had. It was less than $20, maybe about 15 bucks. And it just hit me that that maid is gonna think <laughs> that that's what I used to pay for the stuff that I stole out of the room. <laughs> that's a Christian witness. Okay, I gotta go, I gotta get this stuff back up to the room. Um, terrible. Okay, why do we have more than we need? The reason we have more than we need is because we've never figured out what we need. Excellent. Another reason, why do we have more than we need? Because we can. That's exactly right. It's an option for us, right? We reap the blessings of those that have come before us, which is a very key thing that we're going to talk about later when we talk about wealth and transferring your kids. Often we have more than we need because we're not content and we're, we're not trusting God. That's correct. Anybody else? Anybody got a positive reason of why we have more than we need? So we can supply the needs of those who don't have all they need. God? <laughs> Where'd that come from? Whoa. Wow. That was quite a setup, wasn't it? You know, I, that's exactly right. I mean, there are positives and negative reasons of why we have more than we need, but the bottom line is we have more than we need so that we can help those that are in need. Right? Um, if you live in America, it's going to be very unlikely that you find yourself for an extended period of time in a position where having more than you need is not an option. It will be an option, okay? Another thing uh, that we need to process in the planning, in planning is that life, our life here, when we're dealing with these issues of needs and wants and the giving, it's very short period of time. But every decision that we make with regards to our wealth in this life will have ramifications for all eternity. Big deal. And that's a long period of time. To give you an idea of the brevity of life, I uh, went to deathclock.com. Anybody ever been to deathclock.com? And I, I decided to help some people out here. To just to give them an idea of just how much longer they have. <laughs> Bob, you're, you're looking good, buddy. Man, you, you, you're in your 70s, aren't you? Wow, that's impressive, isn't it? Bob, that is your date of death. <laughs> Jan, put it on the calendar. You enter in your age, your body mass, all that stuff, and it tells you when you're going to die. And I didn't think Bob should be alone in this uh, process, so I added a few more. Todd Harper, youngster, look at there, 912 million seconds. That's how many seconds he has left to live. And this is as of yesterday. Hugh, um, I went to Hugh and asked him for his birthday, and I, and I warned him that he might be dead, actuarial. <laughs> Hugh, are you in here anywhere? This is a really stupid thing to do. The person that invites you to speak, tell them when they're going to die. It's not a smart thing to do. I did ask Hugh if it was negative, could I still put him up there? He said, sure, if I'm dead, go ahead and put it up there. How impressive would that be? And Kathy, uh, just so that you know, December 24th, 2036. Don, put it down. Uh, the bottom line is, look at the bottom, 604,800 seconds in a week. It could be tomorrow. It could be tomorrow. It could be on the way home. It could be today. And so we need to be serious about planning the things that we have. There's three questions that we all ask in our personal journeys of generosity. Why should I be generous? 
That's what we've talked about a lot here. How do I do it? That's some of what we're talking about in this talk. And then where should I give? I'll mention that very briefly at the end. In the planning process, here are the three questions that we ask and answer. Why do I have what I possess? This question is rarely answered in the planning process, but it's the most important foundational question. What should my objectives be? What do I do with what I have? Because when we get on the other side, we're going to be asked, what did you do with what you had? In the planning process, we answer, and then how do you accomplish it? In traditional planning, this gets completely inverted with most advisors. It's all about how do I set up this, that, or the other, and the other two things are not nearly discussed as often. Um, and so it's important to spend some time and think through these things from the bottom up. It's also one of the reasons why having a like-minded advisor. You're much more likely to have these issues addressed if you have a like-minded advisor. On another issue of urgency, men, this is your, for you, a test for you. Please, would you write down the age of your wife? In very, very small number, very small, so nobody else can see it. You got it? Okay, now slide it over and make sure you're right. Okay? Okay? Now, I don't know what you wrote on that paper, obviously, but one of the things that, that men need to understand is that the average age of a widow in America is 57. Ooh, 57. The average woman is a widow for 14 years in the United States of America. So who is ultimately going to distribute the wealth of your family? Guys, sorry. Not only is she writing the checks now, she's going to write the checks forever, buddy. Okay? And when we're talking about getting our house in order and planning, man, this needs to be thought through. The wives are going to have the resources. That should be dealt with now. Now let's talk about kids because in order to answer the how much is enough question, uh, how much do we need, we've got to deal with how we're going to deal with wealth in our children. So I'm going to give you nine essential vitamins on how to think about wealth and your kids. And I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. All right, y'all ready? The first one is, uh, and Daryl actually mentioned this in his breakout session yesterday, is, is this passage of scripture. It's a key verse when we talk about transferring wealth. And the, the abbreviated version is, is that you've got to pass on wisdom before you pass on wealth. You just got to think like that. And that's a, whole, that's a big part of what a family is even all about, is passing on wisdom. Some families have more wealth than others, but all of us have an opportunity to pass on wisdom. So that passage of scripture is really, really important. And one of the things that we want to do in the planning process is we want to, we want to think through these things with regards to our progeny, our kids, our grandkids, great-grandkids, is we want to process through this while we're alive. Most people, their kids find out what they're doing with their wealth when somebody dies. That's when it, the typical you know, unveiling of what's going on happens. Thankfully, this family that I met with 10 years ago didn't wait until they were passing away to let their kids know what they were doing. Could you imagine what would have happened if that would have happened? It would have ruined the relationships with the kids and their mom, number one, and then the three of them would have been in each other's throats constantly. It'd be horrible. So we've got to process through this now. And here's a way to think through this. There are three forms of transferable capital that we pass on to those that are coming behind us. And I made the words bigger for a reason, because the most important capital is spiritual capital. And spiritual capital is that, uh, that passing on of the understanding and the application of God's word in our lives. Obviously, first in the gospel itself, and then as an ongoing discipline. 
Um, your kids and grandkids should just see this. You don't just pass this on verbally. You pass this on with your life. The second is character capital. Character capital is, you know, diligence. Um, all of those things that make up your capital, uh, your character. Patience, honesty, all of those things. And then the final one is financial capital, okay? And um, one of the things, and how many grandparents do we have in the audience? Wow, look at that. Okay, here's a challenge just for the grandparents. Between now and the end of the year, would make sure that all of your grandkids know your testimony. Just know how you came to faith in Christ. That's a part of passing on spiritual capital, okay? And... Um, that's a legacy, and by the way, you know, grandparents have a lot more leeway to, to do these kinds of things than the parents often do. So take advantage of that. Your grandkids will eat up, they'll eat up everything you're telling them. They're, they're, they're really willing and desiring to listen to you. So take advantage of that, pass on some of that capital, okay? Here's our next table exercise. One of the things that you can do is that you can use financial capital to pass on spiritual capital. Okay, I'm going to give you an example of it that happened in the session yesterday that I was in that I thought was great. And I might not get this exactly right. Um, but Hugh and Nancy McClellan, at Christmas time, and I guess it's sometime right before Christmas, they give each of their kids $100 to go do something great with, some experience, give it away. And then what they want for a Christmas gift is not a present from their grandkids, but they want them to write up the experience they had in using those dollars. And then they come together and they share what happened when they used that $100 to do something for somebody else. So you get the deal, that's using financial capital to build spiritual capital. You tracking with me? Now I want you to turn into your tables and I want you to take a couple of minutes and I want you to share any ideas that you have or anything that you've done where you've used financial capital to build character and spiritual capital. Who's, who's got an example that, they, that they'd love to share? Maybe that, that something that you heard at your table or that you'd be willing to share that uh, is a personal example. David, um, I have a, a young adult daughter who's a teacher in a fairly poor school district. And last fall, she noticed a lot of the kids showing up to school without clothing, you know, without mm. jackets, mittens, hats, things like that. And my wife and I were real pleased to see that she came home with a burden on her heart about that issue. And so we provided some resources, but encouraged her to enroll other teachers and other administrators in the school to address this need. So to me, that looked like an example of providing great. some financial capital for character and spiritual That's formation great. with her. Absolutely. And to her credit, she took the ball and ran, and they, they sure. provided about 30 or 40 coats and hats and all for kids in the school. That's a great example. And how old? She's 24. 24. Great. Thank you. Hey, so um, this is my husband, Tate, and about eight years, we've been married like eight years, and uh, when Tank and I were dating, um, I found out his middle name is actually Martin. My son and I were uh, homeless in the city of London for a time, and there's a church there on Trafalgar Square called St. Martin in the Fields. So when Tank agreed that he would marry me, because of course I proposed, um, <laughs> I said, dude, I totally know where we need to get married. It's in London, and it's this little church on Trafalgar Square called St. Martin in the Field. So we took 30 or 35 people with us, and we run to London for the weekend. And most of our pals hadn't been to London before, so we set out this little 
scavenger hunt thing. We gave groups clues, and they had to get around the town, and nobody got to go with their spouse. And then there was a competition, big trophy for who who got through first. And so um, my my son, J Mac, we now have like a collective bunch of sons, and so. J-Mac said, hey, um, why don't we do something that involves the homeless people? So we gave each group a bag, and in the bag was uh, gloves, scarf, hat, and something else that we can't remember. And each group was, uh, out of your, your, your deal, you were supposed to go find one homeless person and um, give them this bag of stuff, but you had to ask three questions. You had to find out what their name was, what their mom's name was, and what their education was. And at the end of the day, we're going to have supper that night, right? So we're thinking, oh, you know, everybody's going to talk about crown jewels. And, oh, yeah, we got to see Westminster Abbey and slobber, slobber, slobber. But, no, everybody <laughs> wanted to tell, like, the homeless guy's story. Yeah. And it was, it was so, I mean, it was like people kind of stopped seeing London and, and just did their homeless guy. One group, there was a, one group found a transvestite, and that transvestite really wanted a manicure. So these seven people take this transvestite guy, person, girl, for a, for a manicure and spend the afternoon with them. One group, finds a, they find a guy and they just like cough up all their cash and get to know him. And, and then one group was, uh, they decided that their homeless woman needed no money, but they took her to a pub and bought her a pint and bought her lunch and spent a couple hours with her. And they all just had these, these incredible, I mean, we didn't really like do something. They all did it, but we kind of got to like, Initiate. Participate. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah. I'll go one more. Okay. So we uh, had one of our sons who uh, was moving out. He had wanted us to pay to move him to uh, another one of our houses on the West Coast from the East Coast. So we had told him that we will supply him that if he goes and works in a ministry that we had set up over in Malawi. So we used that capital just to create an experience hmm. and, and embed him in an organization that we knew that he would. Uh, we used money to almost manipulate <laughs> him to go work with people who were, great. I mean, were just like him, but who loved the Lord and it changed his life. Yeah, I will tell you, that's, I mean, manipulate, that's a little strong, but uh, <laughs> hey, call it what it is. Um, I know lots of, uh, of parents that uh, they have an annual family meeting. Someone that did their testimony is having a, I think it was uh, uh, the Oaks, I have a Thanksgiving family meeting. Uh, many families, the uh, matriarch and patriarch pays for all of their family to come to wherever they're going to have a family meeting. That's using financial capital to build spiritual capital. Um, my folks, uh, if we send our kids to Christian camp, they will cover the cost of the camp. Uh, it's another example, just using financial capital to build spiritual capital. But that's a, key, that's a key thing that we're supposed to do with our wealth. It's a big part of what it's about. Here's just a quick paradigm of transferable capital. Spiritual capital is necessary for the development of true character capital. A strong work ethic is usually necessary to build strong character capital. If spiritual and character capital are strong and tested, it may be advisable to impart financial capital. And if spiritual and ca character capital are not strong and not tested, it's typically not advisable to impart financial capital. Does that make sense? Here's the next vitamin, do no harm. This, how about this quote from Socrates? 
What mean you fellow citizens that you turn every stone to scrape wealth together but take so little care of your children to whom one day you will relinquish it all? And of course, now we know you could put the word spouse in there. Most men could put their wives in that, in that statement. Ask hard questions. Will this transfer of wealth, will it build spiritual capital, build character capital? Will it negatively impact a strong work ethic? This is one of the toughest questions that we deal with when people own folks are passing on wealth. Will it negatively impact a strong work ethic? Will it increase their standard of living without them having to work for it? It's a tough question. Will it give Satan an opportunity to bring calamity? And usually that calamity is within siblings. That's the typical place that it happens. Vitamin F, don't ask how much can we leave our kids. Ask how much will they need. Very different paradigm. The goal is to leave behind kids that are content, whatever the circumstances. That's almost been a theme of the conference, being content. I love this quote by Russ Crossan. If we produce kids that are productive and content, and this has been tried and tested, it almost doesn't matter how much we leave them. But if our children are consumptive and discontent, we won't be able to leave them enough. That's good. That's good. And then finally, uh, the last item is handle the equality issue with great care and prayer. This is a really, really big issue um, with regards to transferring wealth. And this is a, state, a quote by Randy Alcorn, who wrote The Money Possesses Eternity that uh, Steve was mentioning. The question is not what is fair, but what is right. The real questions are, will your children need your money and will they use it wisely? If, 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 you, write down, if you don't write down anything else, that is, that's a key. If the answer to the first question is no, then you should not feel compelled to leave it to them. If the answer to the second question is no, you should feel compelled not to leave it to them. That's tough. And if the answers markedly differ from child to child, you should deal differently with them according to those real differences. I will tell you that if you get down to the bottom of that quote and that's a reality for you, do not do that after you're dead. Okay? You will bring calamity. If you don't, if that's your situation and you're going to, and unequal is, is the smart thing, You've got to start dealing with that now. Got to start dealing with that now. Oh, here's the last one. What if your, ki- if your kids don't want an inheritance, they may be good candidates to receive one. It's a, I'm not sure I would set it up like that in a meeting, <laughs> saying, we're going to disinherit you. How do you feel about that? Um, uh, what, uh, Don Meyer, one of the board members of Generous Giving, um, they, they, one of the things that they did that I think is, is very, very wise, if you can do it, is that... Um, he and his wife, uh, Doris, sat down and decided, okay, here's what we're, we're going to leave our kids after we're gone. And they looked at each other and said, well, we're probably going to live to such an age that our kids would probably be in their 60s um, when we're gone. So let's back it up. Let's present value what we're going to leave to them, and let's give it to them now and be done with it. Now, their kids were, I think, all in their 40s at this time, upper 30s, early 40s. So you don't want to do this when they're teenagers. Um, But there is a point in time where, man, it makes all the sense in the world. Just when you figure out what you're going to do, just go ahead and do it, and you're done. Um, Imagine the stress that that would remove from a family environment if that issue was off the table. Here's a summary of it. Here's the the radioactivity again. With regards to our kids, if if I could just leave three things... um, These are the three key things that I think that we want to pass on to our kids with regards to wealth. With regards to creating wealth, we want all of our kids to work diligently. 
That's, that's vitally important. With regards to consuming, we want them to live frugally. And with regards to contributing, we want them to give generously. Now, what does that mean we need to do? That means we need to do these three things. If that's what we want to see passed on, that's the way we need to be. Um, and it's, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of fun when those kind of things, you're seeing them come up in your kids, and we heard those in the testimonies of those things that are coming up in the kids. You know, as we mentioned before, men, 90, 95% of the time, um, your, your, your spouse um, is going to say these words. What am I going to do now? I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Okay, what am I going to do now? We, we, we want her to answer that question I know exactly what I need to do now. I'm surrounded with people that have helped me. I've known those people were there before this has happened. We have a plan. It's all gonna work out. We don't want to get to the end and then not have the answer to that question known. And if we go through this process of planning, we can make that happen. So one of the things we've gotta do is we have to communicate well, husband and wife. So we're gonna take a little test together. So if everybody would stand up, Turn your chairs back to back. Well, if you don't have a spouse, what I want you to do is I want you to write down the answers to these questions. I mean, I beg your pardon, write down the questions. And after you hear this little experiment, I want to see if you have the guts to go home and actually do this with your spouse. Okay? One of the things we're going to do is we're going to ask some questions. And each of you get something to write with and write on. And I want you to jot down the answers to these questions. No peeking, can't look at your spouse's answers. Are you ready? Everybody ready? Back to back with your spouse. Here we go. Question number one, how much did y'all give to charity last year? Number two, how much did you give to your progeny last year, your children and your grandchildren? How much did you give to them last year? Number three, what is your family's net worth? Number four, how much would you pass on to your progeny, progeny if both of you were to pass away on your way home? Are your children and grandkids treated equally in your estate plan, yes or no? And then do you think they should be? And lastly, how long ago did you update your estate plan? Take a deep breath, turn your chairs around, and compare your answers. <clears throat> and be nice, be nice. That, that exercise, it's just, it's, uh, hopefully it will be an encouragement. Um, yeah, real encouragement. You like that? I'm not going to ask you what your score was. But my hope is that when you go through this exercise, that it will really encourage you to, to uh, get on the same page because uh, the communication is critical. Oh, we have a hugging here in the middle. That's, that's nice. Does, we don't always have hugging when we do this. Uh, congratulations to this couple. Good job. That's a first. Okay, here we come back around. I'm just going to wrap it up. As I mentioned to you at the very beginning, um, the family that um, 
that I, was, that I interacted with, um, I want to tell you what the key was for them coming together as a family. The key actually was generosity. They got together as a family and they put together a mission statement and then they decided to create kind of a unifying experience as a family and they selected um, a ministry that uh, served kids with cancer. And as a family, they poured themselves into this ministry. And it was, it's a very engaging ministry. They poured their resources into it. They poured their time into it. As a family, all of them, and now the grandkids are involved in it. And generosity is really what the key was for them to come together as a family. And they've been doing this for probably the last seven years. It took them a couple of years to find something that they could do together. And they decided that giving of themselves, of their resources, together in the same way is what would bring them back together as a family, and it did. And it's amazing. When I was with them a month ago, I bet they spent half of their time talking about this ministry that they work with. It's what they do. It's what it's, Their whole lives are centered around this, and it's just so exciting to see. Um, so I just, I'm gonna we're gonna close with a short video, and the video actually uh, is set to a song that is uh, actually the, really the mission statement uh, that my mom and dad have come up with for our family. And so we're gonna close with this, and uh, my prayer is that in all that we do with regards to our wealth, that we will be found faithful. That's the hope. Thanks.